Injured at work in a motor vehicle accident or had a fall in a public space? Speak to Your Claim Lawyers, a no-win, no-fee, personal injury claims law firm that specialises in maximising compensation claims for injured people. Call 1-800-YOUR-CLAIM or yourclaimlawyers.com.au. Welcome to This Is Your Journey with Sam Edmund. For Tobin Brothers Funerals, visit tobinbrothers.com.au. Tobin Brothers Funerals, celebrating lives. Hello everybody and welcome to the show, made possible by our friends at Tobin Brothers Funerals Celebrating Lives. Well today, we're joined by a man whose voice is instantly recognisable as one of the world's most admired cycling broadcasters. Matthew Keenan grew up with dreams of winning the Tour de France, but pardon the pun, he's found his calling behind the microphone where his passion for and encyclopedic knowledge of the sport shines through. He fills his car up with petrol once a year and he buys more highlighters than the Department of Education. Matt, thanks so much for your time and welcome thanks for the introduction you're spot on about the petrol and even more about the highlighters and you're right i did dream of winning the tour de france until i rode my first three races and i came last in all three of them (laughs) on day number one at the velodrome at northcote but i went home with confidence thinking how good will my autobiography be when i go from last to winning the tour de france the perfect title to the book rags to riches well we'll explain the highlighters (laughs) later but i wouldn't be too far off with the petrol as you say now we aren't catching up face to face but i know that if we were you would have ridden your bike in. It's like the old American Express ad. You, you never leave your home without it. Yeah, I like to ride to all the meetings that I go to, unless it's somewhere that's dangerous to ride to. I use the bike as my form of transport effectively. And it's transport and exercise all for the price of one. I don't have to worry about parking. I get a bit of a workout whilst I'm going there. It's more relaxing on the way home. I avoid the road rage. And the beauty is I live in Heidelberg. I can ride into the CBD without a single set of traffic light. And I'm bike track most of the way in onto the Darabin Trail, the Arid Trail. I'm hardly on the road at all. It's fantastic. So pre-COVID, you're in a hotel room, what, five or six months of the year calling cycling races, but you also host a lot of functions when you're here in Melbourne. Now, I don't think I've ever seen anyone ride into one of these functions, no matter the dress requirements, strip off their cycling gear, and you've basically got a suit on underneath. Yeah, I have. So I'll ride into a function, (laughs) and I'll have a... Sometimes it's required a full suit, which I'll neatly fold into a backpack, find somewhere to get changed, lock the bike up car park downstairs i'll go to a fully blown luncheon or dinner that requires a suit and tie and i'll ride my bike there it doesn't matter what the occasion is i just love riding my bike and that speaks to who you are though I and mean, i reckon you're a real life lesson in finding your passion and chasing it so you had a professional cycling dream which we'll get to shortly you chased that hard you had a crack in europe it didn't work out but you reset and you chase just as hard for the one you live now and as humans funnily enough we tend to be good at what we enjoy don't we yeah, it makes a huge difference when you're passionate about it. When I made that switch to going from having a real job, pursuing the career of being a cycling commentator, <laughs> the nerd in me felt the need to write a business. And I started that business plan with a mission statement, which is quite simply, and it's true to this day, and I wrote this plan more than 10 years ago, to infect as many people as possible with the bike bug. And the reason I have that as my mission statement is that my life is infinitely better because I've got bikes in it. Whether that's to do with racing or just commuting that we've spoken about, 
about the time that I've spent out training with friends and so on. My network of friends is all through cycling. My life is better because of bike. So I want to infect people with that bug. So if I start from that position and I filter all the work that I do through that mission state, then I'm not making decisions about how much money will I earn from doing this job. It's about trying to achieve that state. And then if I achieve that and I do it well, hopefully the money will come there and I can earn enough money to put food on the table and keep the family fed. I don't know what you fill out at the arrival form at overseas airports. It's, it's the old question, isn't it? The work or the pleasure box that you've got to tick. I mean, you'd be well within your rights to tick both. Yeah, and that's one of the conversations that I often have with my wife when we're on the couch and she'll be watching television show that I just can't get engaged in. And I'll be flicking through the phone or on the iPad or something along those lines and I'll be looking at cycling results or reading a news story about a cyclist and she'll say to me, is that work or pleasure? And I can honestly say both. <laughs> it's me just constantly doing research, but I'd be reading it anyway. If I was a plumber or an accountant, if I had a different sort of a job, I'd still be reading that stuff anyway. So you're speaking to us from the Melbourne suburb of Heidelberg, as you say, but it was five or 10 minutes around the corner in Rosanna that you grew up. So let's rewind, Matty. One of seven kids, have I got that right? Yeah, that's right. One of seven. And I've got middle child syndrome. I'm not technically the middle child, but I've got four sisters and two brothers, but directly above me in age, I've got twin sisters and below me, I have twin brothers. So they command their own attention. They're at their own little team and I was the one stuck in the middle. So I was crying out for attention as a kid and I was a bit of a loud. But you were pretty good at making your own fun though, weren't you? Like like some people listening this morning, you know, you weren't shy in commentating your own pursuits. So footy, cricket, you just commentate yourself. Oh, you wouldn't believe how many possessions I had down at Rosanna Parklands playing <laughs> football by myself. And I was somehow in the Carlton jumper and it was Harms to Keenan to Bazasto, <laughs> Keenan, goal! And we always beat Collingwood and Richmond every single Saturday morning after I'd watched the Herald Shield of Marsland versus Assumption College on a Saturday morning, which followed the Thunderbirds. Now, though, you did find time to, to develop a bit of a crush on a girl at Rosanna Primary, though, I'd heard, who lived uh, down the road back in the day. Now, her dad was a fellow by the name of Jim Fawcett, who was also yeah. a friend of your parents. How did Jim shape your life when it came specifically to your love of the bike? Well, he was a huge influence. So Lyndall was his daughter. She was the same age as me, and she was my first crush. She was my childhood sweetheart. Her dad and my parents, so he, her mum and dad and my parents were, were family friends. And he was the all-round sports person. He played VFA football for Preston, a premiership player at Preston in the VFA. He played district cricket, I think it was for Paran. And as a cyclist, he won a Melbourne Yarra Wonga. So he was just good at everything. Uh, tragically, he was killed riding to work on the 1st of April, 1987. And I was only 12 years of age. But seeing him around my, my parents and seeing how fit and healthy he looked compared to all the other dads of the same age, I was just infatuated by how athletic he was, how strong he appeared to be. And when you're 10, 11 years of age, you know, having that positive influence can really have an impact on your life. So I just wanted to ride bikes because of his influence. Even at that point as a kid, I you know loved riding BMXs. I, st- I rode to school already at, at that age. I loved bikes. He made me want to race. And then when he was killed, mum and dad were of the view that cycling is too dangerous. You're not riding bikes. So I spent the next three years too young to actually have a part-time job at a supermarket or a fast food outlet, mowing lawns at tennis clubs and units that are in our area and the aged care facility and so on and accumulating enough money to be able to get together the cash required to buy my first frame, my first set of wheels. And then his his wife or his widow, Jan, gave me all his hand-me-down equipment, all the gears and the brakes and all that sort of stuff. And I cobbled together my first ever bike to be able to race on. It took me three years from when I asked mum and dad, can I become a cyclist? Can I race? To when I actually got the opportunity to ride that first race. And although that 
was difficult to have that period. Worked out pretty, it helped me work out this is something that I really, really want to do because there were a few hurdles in the way to get there. Yeah. Um, and then there's a more memorial race for Jim and that was one of the one of the races that I really, really wanted to win. Eventually, I did manage to win it. And you mentioned Jan there. It was She was the one that told you, was she not, cycling gets into your blood and yeah. once it's there, it. you can't get rid of it. Yeah, she's right. And it's been more than 31 years since I rode my first bike race and I still can't get rid of it. And it's partly her fault that I'm involved in cycling because uh, we'd go away as families and she would tell stories and I'd love hearing those stories. And there were photos of Jim around the house that after he'd passed away that I'd see and I'd ask questions and she'd tell the story of when he won the Melbourne to Yarrawonga and I just loved those stories. And she was a, she was one of the ones who, knowing the risk more than anybody else because her husband had been killed riding to work, she still supported what I what I did. And one of the pieces of equipment that I got from, from Jan and, and Jim was a, a pump, you know, a track pump, a Silka track pump, which uh, doesn't really work properly anymore, but I've still got it. And that's a pump that he had back in the 1980s, but I've still managed to hold on to it. Oh, that's nice. That's nice. You're listening yeah. to This Is Your Journey, and it's thanks to Tobin Brothers Funerals, a family-owned business since 1934. Well, next, we'll revisit Matthew Keenan's pursuit of his first cycling dream, making the world... You're listening to This Is Your Journey with Sam Edmund. For Tobin Brothers Funerals, visit tobinbrothers.com.au. Tobin Brothers Funerals, celebrating lives. You're listening to This Is Your Journey with Sam Edmund. For Tobin Brothers Funerals, visit tobinbrothers.com.au. Tobin Brothers Funerals, celebrating lives. Hello, it's great to have your company on This Is Your Journey, made possible by Tobin Brothers Funerals, celebrating lives. We're chatting to worldwide cycling commentator, Matthew Keenan. Matty, just coming back to your folks again, they weren't what you have termed lawnmower parents, you know, staying with the lawnmowers for a second, in that they didn't just mow or clear a path for you. I suppose six other kids, there's no time to scratch your bum, but it, but it was hard earned. And years later, as a teenager for you and into adulthood, I'd imagine this serves you well in that nothing is given to you, that sort of mentality. Yeah, I think I really benefited from the fact that they weren't there to actually make it easy for me to get involved in cycling. So as a 15-year-old, once I got started in cycling, to do road races, you've got to go a fair way out of town. You're going to places like Seymour and Broadford, Lansfield and so on. It's not just around the corner as you get to do with football or basketball or tennis, the other sports that we played as a family. And my sister's playing netball as well. They're all pretty locally based. They're only a couple of suburbs away. So for me, that resulted in having to get on the phone or look up the phone book for starters back in the early 1990s, find who the club president was of the club that was organising the weekend's race, contact that person, ask for anybody that was riding the race on that weekend that was in my area that might have a spare spot in the car, getting that person's phone number and then ringing them. And these were all generally men in their mid-20s to early 30s. And I'm a 15-year-old kid ringing them up asking for a lift to go to this bike race. So that certainly helped. That served me really well in the future when you're trying to get a job with a French company to work at the Tour de France because you've worked out pretty quickly that you've got to make your own way in life. And I think it's it was a lot better for me than having mum and dad take me to every bike race and make it really easy for me to be able to get that first bike. Mm. So that first bike comes from Jim Forster, as you mentioned, the hand-me-down. You race for the first time at 15 years of age at Northcote. And as yep. you just touched on, the, the winds don't exactly start pouring in, but some, no. somehow the wheel turns, pardon the pun, and you do have 
have some talent. Yeah, I, the first three races I rode were on a Thursday night, and they were on the velodrome at Northcote. So I figured going home from three races in the one night and coming last in every one of them, I'm a road cyclist. There's no velodrome at the Tour de France, and I'm going to win the Tour de France. <laughs> so I was, I got onto the road, and I started to get get a few more results. So I started to not finish last. I went a little bit better. Uh, got to a position where, on a national level, I got to a position where I was going okay. I ended up in what's the equivalent now to the National Road Series. I ended up finishing in fifth position overall in the National Road Series. Top 10 in the Australian National Road Championships. That was in, in 1996 when the National Road Championships were held in Sydney. And it was 200 kilometres around Centennial Park. It was a five-kilometre lap around oh. Centennial Park. And it was 200 kilometres. Now, were you fourth and or sixth? Because I think it's the former, but the results say the latter. Can you clear this up? Yeah, so on Cycling News, the results show that I finished fourth at the National Championships. So it's a little bit like Todd Viney when he used to get the quotes of him beating Boris Becker as a junior. He just never corrected anybody. <laughs> right, okay. He just moved on. So I don't correct anybody if they say I finished fourth at the national championships. <laughs> but the significant element of that result was 1996 was the first year that they had under 23s at the world championships. Yeah. And I was the first under 23 at the national championship. And I thought that I was a chance to get selected for the national team to go to the world championship because they had six riders on the national team for the under 23s to go to the world. And coming first at the Australian champ, thought I might get selected. Unfortunately, I didn't. But when I look at the generation of riders that I was with, the selectors actually, in hindsight, they made the right choice not picking me. It didn't feel like it at the time that they made the right choice. The guys in my generation included, well, let's start with Cadell Evans. Right. You had you had Brad, you had Brad McGee, who was you know Olympic Games gold medalist, a top 10 finisher at the Giro, wore the yellow jersey at the Tour de France. Baden Cook, a green jersey at the Tour de France. Uh, you had uh, Michael Rogers, a triple world champion, was snuck into the under-23 category at that point. Uh, Luke Roberts, who won Olympic Games gold medal, rode the Tour de France a few yep. times. So there's five guys already that yeah, I think the selectors made the right decision <laughs> going with them ahead of me, to be fair. Goodness me, that's a tough crowd. So you develop, yeah. though, and you go chips in for the dream. Now, you had two stints overseas, didn't you? One with a Dutch yeah. team initially and then another with a French team? Yeah, so with the I spent 20 years of age. I rode for a, for a Dutch team, and I realised pretty quickly maybe I'm not as good as I think I am. So I had some okay results, a few top 10 finishes. And at 20 years of age, I realized maybe I need to get an education behind me. And I'd mucked around at school. I'd actually wagged school to go training. Other guys had wagged school and they'd go and chase girls, experiment with alcohol and drugs. I'd wag school, hide my school bags at the Rosanna Parklands and go training. But after racing in Europe as a 20-year-old, I figured maybe I actually need to get an education. So at 21 years of age, I came back home. I raced in Australia and I did my VCE for, well, the first time properly. Was that so as a 21-year-old, I was doing in, 12 at TAFE. Yeah, was that tough? Not at school. I did it at oh, TAFE. Oh, TAFE, that's all right. Yeah, and there was, a, there was a lady there who was a, she'd migrated from somewhere in South America. I can't quite remember where it was. And she was in her late 70s. Her husband had passed away a couple of years earlier, and she just wanted to prove to herself that she could do year 12 in what was her second language, and she was a real inspiration. I had to achieve a few things, like finish top 10 at the national championships, was one of them. And then I could justify going overseas again. And I managed to achieve those things. Incidentally, at that national championship, there was eight of us in the leading group that ended up being the winning group. Six of them were from the Australian Institute of Sport. The other one was Eddie Sellis, who'd finished sixth at the Olympic Games in Seoul. And there was me. So I was in pretty good company, but you can remember how big mobile phones were then. And the guy that was the manager of the the group that sponsored me, Geromondo Sportswear, Agostino Geromondo, he was in Melbourne 
Melbourne. Triple J were doing updates and he heard that I was in the leading group. So he rang the guy that was in the car that was providing the neutral service directly behind us in the breakaway. And the mobile phone comes out. He says, Kino, it's for you. It's Agostino. I grab the phone. Agostino says to me, Kino, just sit on. And what you know what that means, Sam, that means sit on, don't do any work, try and stay in the slipstream. That was the only advice he provided me. Still wasn't quite enough, but I you know, managed to slip into sixth position there. So you're riding in so the I race did... and you've been asked to hold a brick of a mobile phone as it well. Was, <laughs> it was good for me, but there was quality guys in the break with me. Nick Gates won it. He ended up winning the, uh, so he won it and he rode the Tour de France a couple of times with Robbie McEwen. Uh, Damien McDonald was second. He rode the Olympics that year. Eddie Sellis, who I mentioned, uh, he was third. He'd been sixth at the Los Angeles, uh, sorry, sixth at the Seoul Olympic. You had Brett Dennis, who beat Lance Armstrong in a time trial at the Tour de Ponce. Dean Rogers was in the breakaway, the brother of Mick Rogers. Rodney McGee was in the breakaway, the brother of Brad. I got myself back to Europe then as a 22-year-old in 1997 for, for another stint to see if I could make it. So that was the French team. Now, I've I, I got to ask you about this. You set a target. You're all about targets. You set a target of four wins. You won twice and you chucked yeah. it in. Now, you were resolute, weren't you, that you weren't going to make it off the back of that and you, you cut the cord. Was there a specific light bulb moment in this regard and do you regret not pushing it further how did you have such clarity at that at that stage i don't regret it because of the position that i'm in now and i don't have any regrets because i'm realistic about knowing where i was at I, the reason that i did not make it as a professional cyclist was not a lack of effort was not a lack of discipline and it was not a lack of opportunity it was a simple lack of ability i just wasn't good enough and i can live with that i'd set the targets i knew what i needed to achieve at each point to get to that next level and i had in my mind that i needed to win four races and I won two. The first one that I won was after about six weeks being with this French team, which was based out in Paris. And I was in a breakaway. We we're coming down to the last couple laps around this circle. It was point A to point B and then a few finishing circuits. There was three laps to go. There's six of us in the group. Two laps to go. There's four of us in the group. One lap to go, a five kilometer circuit. It's me and one of my teammates. We're all that's left. And the peloton's closing in on it. Nobody has spoken English to me at this point in the time that I've been there. And this teammate of mine, Thierry, he says, I want to win. I nearly fell off my bike. He speaks English, Sam. He speaks English. I said, I want to win too. He said, all my family is here. My grandparents are here. This is my local region. I want to win. He's fluent. He's fluent. He can speak good English. He hadn't spoken a word of it to me to that point. And he's sitting behind me. He's not contributing. And with him not helping, we're going to get caught. And I figure I'm in trouble here. I said, I want to win too. I flew Garuda, Indonesia to get here. I really want to win. He didn't quite understand that. And then I said, okay, he still didn't work. I said, okay, you win, but I get the money for first and second because we had to work together or neither of us were going to win. And at that point, I kind of thought, yeah, okay, I'm going to get second in this race. But then as we got down to a kilometer to go, you can understand this, Sam. I thought maybe I'll never get another opportunity to win a race in Europe. Oh, yeah. And there was a corner with about 500 meters to go. I said, oh, from the corner, I'll lead you to the finish line. We came towards that corner. I laid off him a couple of lengths, ducked up the inside, shot through the corner. I was three, four bite lengths in front of him, sprinted to the finish line. I won the race. He came across the line and he was seriously talking French to me then. How did that go with Team Harmony? Uh, no good with Terry. The team manager was wrapped. Yeah. They got first and second. And I explained to him what happened. He says, I don't care as long as we're winning. So you cut the cord. You, you started year 12 late. You started uni late. You came back to Australia. 23, you were studying marketing yeah. with a PR major. In other words, yeah. professional spin doctoring. And and you're Correct. playing catch up here at this point, aren't you? Your uni mates, I imagine, are off partying. 
working, you're volunteering for places you wanted to work at. Yeah, exactly. So I started with, I volunteered at Sport and Recreation Victoria to try and work on the soccer matches, part of the Olympic football tournament that was being played at the MCG. And I ended up getting a job at Sport and Rec Victoria. And then I was having you know normal jobs. I worked at Burundara Council. Then I worked at Stockford, which was an accounting and financial planning firm. Then I had a job at uh, WorkSafe Victoria. At some point along the line there, there was an advertisement to commentate the races at the venue we now know as John Kane Memorial Arena, the multi-purpose venue down at the tennis center. And I thought that'd be a really fun way to stay involved in cycling. And I went to do the interview. They interviewed two people for this voluntary job. We're not getting paid. And there was a panel of about eight people from Cyclist International. And the guy that went in before me was Robert Crow, who was a way better bike rider than me multiple Australian champion, went to the Barcelona Olympics. He walked out and I walked in. And the first question they say is, we've just had Robert Crow in here. He was a better bike rider than you. How can you add value to the commentary that is equal or better than Crowy? It was a pretty tough opening question. So uh, I said, well, who's a better bike rider, Paul Sherwin or Phil Anderson? Uh, and they said, well, Phil Anderson, of course. What's of course, no, no question. I said, okay, I agree. But who's a better commentator, Paul Sherwin or Phil Anderson? And Paul Sherwin, one of the great. Absolutely love Paul Sherwin. And then I said, oh, okay, it's a good point. We'll give you both a go. So we both got to commentate and I just fell in love with it. And then after that night, and I remember it well, Lee Howard, who's just retired, won all the under-15s races. Uh, Richard England won the Melbourne Cup on Wheels the Handicap and we dubbed him with the nickname Dick London. And I thought, maybe there's more than one way to skin a cat. Perhaps I can go to the Tour de France as a commentator. You're with This Is Your Journey, brought to you by Tobin Brothers Funerals Celebrating Lives. You can catch them online at tobinbrothers.com.au. After this break, let's talk about Matthew Keenan's path to the Tour de France. It's like the Leyland Brothers. He went absolutely everywhere chasing his dream. That's up next. You're listening to This Is Your Journey with Sam Edmund. For Tobin Brothers Funerals, visit tobinbrothers.com.au. Tobin Brothers Funerals Celebrating Lives. You're listening to This Is Your Journey with Sam Edmund. For Tobin Brothers Funerals, visit tobinbrothers.com.au. Tobin Brothers Funerals, celebrating lives. Hello, we hope you're enjoying this week's edition of This Is Your Journey. We're with Tour de France commentator Matthew Keenan. So, Matty, just take us back to the velodrome for a second, uh, alongside Robert Crowe, of course. Um, Anxious? Was it like an adrenaline shot? Was it instant love? was Saturday night yeah. prime time, wasn't it? Yeah, so Stewie Doyle was the lead commentator. And I know Phil Liggett is the international voice of cycling, but Stewie Doyle is the best venue commentator I've ever heard. And I think Phil would even acknowledge that because commentating on TV to venue is very different. Stewie Doyle, when I raced on the track, and you could ask David McKenzie this because he was commentated on a lot by Stewie Doyle. In a track race, if you didn't think you could win, you'd try and do something to get Stewie to say your name. He was fantastic. He made the hair stand up on the back of your neck. He could make an E-grade scratch race that was as dull as dishwater, sound like it was the Olympic final, and it came down to a photo finish in the battle for the gold. Gold medal. He was just brilliant. So I got to work with him. He was the lead commentator and it was sensational. But anybody who has been in a position where they've had to stand in front of the classroom or give a presentation at work, they know that jittery feeling that you get before you have to say your first few words. I had that for the 48 hours before going to the velodrome <laughs> and starting to commentate. But as nervous as I was and as uncomfortable as that feeling is, it's also a positive energy. There's something good about going outside your comfort zone. And I enjoyed that buzz. And it was a buzz that was similar to the buzz that I got when I raced or when I did any other sport when I was a kid. 
And I can always remember as a young kid with going to whether it was junior football or athletics or tennis or basketball. And I'd say to dad on in the car on the way there, dad, I'm nervous. He'd always say, that's a good thing. It means you care. And I was nervous as hell going to that velodrome. But I figured that was a good thing because it meant I cared. It meant I wanted to do a good job. You hadn't yeah. done any commentary before then, had you? And, and precious little public speaking. It was, this was this is deep end stuff. There 4,000 people for the first public speaking event that I ever did. Yeah. <laughs> we call it, it a, pretty good. We call it a job, but like a lot of things around this time, that that's a loose term because you were volunteering. I mean, you went anywhere yeah. there was a microphone, junior races, regional areas, community radio. You know, you spent three to four years not getting paid a cent. In fact, you were spending, even spending annual leave on the pursuit, weren't you? Yeah, exactly. So I'd go to events like the Lee and Gather Track Carnival, Warrigal Junior Carnival. I used to do the Puma Sports Show with the dear old John Forbes out in the western suburbs on a Saturday morning. So I'd volunteer to do that. I'd write articles for any website or magazine that would take an article from me. Ended up hosting a show for a while on SEN, first off the bike with Phil Rockner. That was a triathlon and cycling show. I did whatever I could to get as much experience under my wheels as possible. So as if the opportunity opened up, I'd be ready to take that opportunity. And the Bay Crits, the Bay Cycling Classic, was the one event where Phil Liggett used to come out to each year. And I was really determined to get an opportunity to work with Phil to see if I could impress him enough as he could be the guy that could open up some doors for me. And I paid for all my accommodation. I paid to go and commentate on the support races there. Then the second year after doing that again, doing all the support races, the last day, Phil said, why don't you come up on the stage and commentate with me on the elite race? And that was the beginning of my relationship with Phil, which ultimately opened up the door to the Tour de France for me. Fantastic. And just before we come back to Phil and the Tour, do you look back on some of those smaller races? Now, I know current day, there's there'd be enormous pressure in doing justice to a stage finish at the Tour de France. But do you look back on some of these regional races as the most difficult? I mean, little Johnny or the local Sparky doesn't exactly have a cycling Wikipedia page. Mum and Dad are listening too. I mean, this is hard graph. The smaller the race the harder it is to commentate. The bigger races are easier because when there's dull moments, the people that you're commentating on, they've got more to say about them because they've got extensive careers to get to that point. Uh, they've got a story. But if you're commentating on a bunch of 15-year-olds in B grade riding around the Shepherd and Velodrome, there's not much to say about them because they're only just beginning. You learn your craft really well in that environment. In addition to that, the only people listening are mum and dad So they know when you're wrong and they will (laughs) correct you. So they're the perfect training ground. And, And that's how I saw it. I saw them as my training ground. Just as Kid 11 started riding club races, then state level races, then national level races, that's how I saw it as my pathway to go to the tour. So the years of sacrifice are about to pay off big time. You get to know Phil, obviously, at Johnny Trevorrow's Bakerits. You get to know his partner in crime, the late Paul Sherwin, as well. So 2007, the ASO, the company who owned the Tour de France and other races around the world, they asked uh, Phil and Paul to do the Tour of Qatar. But it clashed that year, did it not, with the Tour of California. And Correct. Phil said, I know a guy. And they're yeah. on the line to you. Can you believe it? Yes, yeah, so I was sitting in the office at WorkSafe in 2007 in February, and I get an email from ASO, the owners of the Tour de France. Are you available in 10 days time to come to Qatar, commentate on this race? You've been recommended by Phil Liggett and Paul Sherwin. Well, (laughs) yes, 
Got enough, got <laughs> enough, just, got enough annual leave out, for that? I'll work all the other stuff out later. Yes, I am. Well, I'll organise airfares. What do you need from my end to make this happen? And then I'll go and talk to my bosses and get leave and that sort of stuff. And my boss was amazing in the support that he gave me to, to see that this is somebody's dream. And as good as my job was, it's a little different when you're getting to commentate on the world's biggest bike races. So I went I went there and they said over the last few years, we've had a different commentator each year to do the lead-in for the first hour or so to fill in Paul on the Tour de France. So we're going to consider this as a rehearsal for you for the Tour de France. Well, you reckon I was nervous going to Vodafone Arena for the first time <laughs> commentating. I was Dennis Denudo before the High Court of Australia before that opening day of the Tour of Qatar. And then I, when you, you know, it's like Sam, when you're nervous, you talk too much. I had a stinker. Day one, oh, no. I just, so nervous. I had an absolute stinker. We got to the dinner table. I said to the people from ASO that were coordinating all the TV production, what did you, what did you think of my performance today? And their response was music to my ears. We had a few technical difficulties. We really didn't get to listen. Oh, no. <laughs> Bingo. Fantastic. So, and then they gave me no feedback for the rest of that tour. And I got home thinking, oh, well, no good. There goes the dream. And then a week after I got home, they sent me another email. Are you available in March to come and do Paris-Nice? Oh. Back, knock, knock, knock on the boss's door. <laughs> I'm off again. And he said, yep, go for it. So then I went and did Paris-Nice. And then two weeks later, they said, do you think you can make it to France in July to commentate on the tour? That, that email there, which I think that year, 07 tour started in London. Yeah, I mean, London. What, what, a, what a moment. Oh, yeah. I reckon I might still have that email. Sam. And then, so I've gone over to the tour in 2007 in London it was it was a surreal experience because I'm surrounded by all these people that I've just watched on television my entire life that I've been involved in cycling. So obviously I was really nervous and I figured the key for me to come in my nerves is doing great preparation. So I have done not hours of preparation, but days of preparation for the opening day, the prologue. And the producer said, we're not sure how long you're going to be on air. It could be 15 minutes or it could be an hour or so. We're not exactly sure how it's going to work with the NBC who are going to be driving a lot of it and when they're using Phil and Paul. So just get ready to go. So I've got all this material lined up and I'm ready to commentate for an hour. The count, the 10 second countdown goes, they roll the opening and I do my hello and welcome. And I've just about finished my hello and welcome about 35 seconds in. And then the producer from NBC says, Matt Keenan, the throw to Phil and Paul in 10. No, no. <laughs> but by, well, I must say, in many respects, it was a little bit of a relief because I got that, that nervous moment, that first nervous moment dealt with and handed it over to Phil and Paul, watched and learnt for the rest of the day. And then I got to commentate for an hour or so the following day. We're talking to Matt Keenan on This Is Your Journey. Thanks to Tobin Brothers Funerals Celebrating Lives. Matt, well, he's going to take us inside the Tour de France commentary booth right after this. You're listening to This Is Your Journey with Sam Edmund. For Tobin Brothers Funerals, visit tobinbrothers.com.au. Tobin Brothers Funerals, celebrating lives. You're listening to This Is Your Journey with Sam Edmund. For Tobin Brothers Funerals, visit tobinbrothers.com.au. Tobin Brothers Funerals, celebrating lives. It's been great to have your company here on This Is Your Journey. Thanks to Tobin Brothers Funerals. They're a family-owned business since 1934, and Matt Keenan has been our guest today. So, Matty, the Tour de France, the biggest annual sporting event in the world, millions of roadside spectators, 3,500 kilometres of road covered, 21 race days. Where do you actually call a stage from with your special comments man, the three-time green jersey winner, Robbie McEwen? Well, you've been lucky enough to see it. We are part of the finish line. We are right on the finish line. These trucks, it's a Dutch company that organizes 
organize it. They're double-decker trucks. The bottom deck of the truck is all the TV networks. The top deck is all the radio network. And we are stacked in next, next to each other. It's NBC, then it's Robbie McEwen and myself. Then it is the Norwegians. Then it's the French Eurosport. Then there is the British Eurosport. Then there's the Danish crew. Then there's the Germans. And there's a couple of those trucks. There's other networks that, are, that base themselves out elsewhere. They build their own studios and so on. But the atmosphere within that truck, and they're tiny little booths really, but the atmosphere is just sensational. And each year we get to be next to the Norwegians. And whenever a Norwegian is anywhere near the finish line, <laughs> you can you can put a blindfold on it and you know where they win or lose. Because now Richie Benno said there's a, the, if he's eight rules in commentary, there's no team called them or us. In Norway, there's an us. And they go bananas when a Norwegian manages to get the win, which is really quite enjoyable. And I love that international atmosphere. Geez, they'd have some uh, going to catch the Colombians. I've seen them on the finish line. I reckon oh, they might good. be the most no, excitable. Uh, that's pure theatre. <laughs> now, Robbie, your co-commentator, of course, was known for his fearlessness on two wheels and going to places others wouldn't go. Now, you two travel together. Is being a passenger in his rental car a pure white-knuckle experience? Pure. And you've seen a little bit of it. So we were going off the mountain one day and we're stuck in traffic and it takes forever to get off the mountains whenever it's difficult Robbie's Robbie drives if it's smooth on a freeway I drive and we're coming off the mountain and we hear gendarmes coming in the distance that siren is coming and Robbie backs off the car in front of us and as the gendarmes come past us all the other traffic's at a standstill Robbie switches in and gets in their slipstream as if he's racing and then he looks in the rearview mirror behind us and there's Greg LeMond three-time winner of the Tour de France Robbie looks looks across at me and he says green jersey yellow jersey <laughs> he's flicked the yellow jersey he's got the prime position behind the gendarmes which mind you was an illegal move by the time we got to the bottom of the mountain the police pulled us over and then asked for our accreditation they took a photo of his accreditation my accreditation robbie said what's going to happen he, they said oh you'll find out tomorrow at the start line robbie looked at me with a shrug and as the policeman walked away he said Kino we never go to the start line we're always at the finish line we just won ourselves about 58 minutes Yeah, right. and off we go <laughs> so 23 teams 184 riders they've got helmets on obviously sunglasses if the weather's shocking there's rain jackets there's leggings this isn't football there's no big number on the back of the jersey yeah. and you pride yourself on your rider ID how do you do it? Well, I'm a nerd for starters. So I do spend a lot of time watching bike races and researching it. But it's also about knowing what role various riders have on a team. So if there's a breakaway on a flat stage and the Lotto Sildale team have one rider on the front chasing, you can go through a process of elimination. You know that it's not Caleb Ewan because that's the guy they're working for. He's going to be sprinting. And you know it's not Jesper de Boost and Roger Kluger because they're his two key lead-out men. You know it's not going to be Tim Wellens because that's the guy they put in the breakaways when it's on the mountain stages. You know, So you've gotten rid of four riders already who it's not going to. To be um, so you can you got that process of elimination and you know whose role is what on the team you know it's probably going to be Thomas de Ghent and if you get a look he's gonna he's got a beard it's going to be Thomas de Ghent you know what sort of sock height various riders wear you know how tall they are <laughs> roughly how much they weigh you know their riding styles and the key is knowing what role they play I can probably tell you who's doing what chasing early in a stage without even looking at the screen if you just tell me what team is chasing and what the scenario of the race is because I know what their roles are. Likewise, when it comes to the final couple of kilometers, I know who is the last guy to do the job for each of the sprinters and what they 
what patterns they normally have in their strategy when it comes down to a sprint finish. You know, I know which team tries to go long with the sprint finish, which team tries to come from behind. I understand all their different roles that they manage to play. So I eliminate who it's not going to be pretty quickly and I narrow it down to a small group of riders out of that peloton of 180. So as is the case with any endurance sport, I mean, a race situation can remain the same for what, 150 kilometres. So there's yeah. only so much you can say about the same two guys in a breakaway being up the road over the course of three hours. So your background spreadsheet is your Bible. Now, heaven forbid if this ever found its way into the wrong hands. How long have you been working on this document for? It's an ongoing update. So I like to try and find stuff that you can't get on the internet. So people just can't research it on the internet. So one of the advantages which we've lost throughout COVID is when you go to the races, and particularly when I go to some of the earlier season races, the slightly smaller, and you're sharing the hotels with you bump into the soigneurs and the mechanics and so on, and the team managers and the riders themselves breakfast table or the you know buffet for the dinner and you get to learn a little bit more about them and I'm always just updating my note but there was one scenario in the tour a couple of years ago where Guillaume Van Kiesbel broke away on his own 204 kilometers now Robbie knew this guy really really well to the point where he had that guy's grandparents in the car with him at the tour down under the year before so we had plenty to, to say about this guy but not 204 kilometers worth <laughs> where he's the only one in the breakaway and you know that one that one was a real challenge now quickly what about the castles because i know you don't know those intimately and for some people let's be honest that, that's the only reason they're watching the tour. yeah it is so there's somebody whose job it is in the organization of aso that own the tour once the course is confirmed they drive the course and they find all those historical monuments and they write a book that gives us the details on the chateaus the churches uh, particularly in the northern part of France about any of the historical battles from the first or the second world war and there's a version of that in French and a version of that in English and that gets given to all the various commentators and you also look to try and link those stories back to something that is happening in the race at that time. There was an example in the Tour de France this year where they went past some caves that had some um, historic cave paintings that went back tens of thousands of years and that was during NAIDOC week here in Australia so I tried I linked that back to some of what was happening with NAIDOC week so you look for what you've been given with that information to try and make it as relevant as possible to the audience that you're commentating to now as I mentioned off the top your use of highlighters is well known in fact you're keeping office works afloat it must be said let, let us in there please okay so you have the yellow highlighter is for those that are contenders for the general classification so you highlight who the team leaders are and this gets back to our right identification so they get a yellow highlighter put across their name on the start list each day have a green highlighter for anybody who is a sprinter so you identify the people on the team pretty quickly who are sprinters so that helps with the rider identification once again you have an orange for the, a wildcard sprint chance or a wildcard GC chance depending on whether it's a mountain stage or a flat stage blue highlighter for the first contingent that is within the breakaway and then if that breakaway gets caught the next breakaway you use a pink highlighter on them and then you have one of those big four um, pen biros that have got the different colours and you can do circles around them and jot down little notes. The highlighter system, Sam, it is crucial. SBS's decision to part ways with Phil and Paul in 2017, having had them front the coverage since I think 1991, was always going to be big news. And you and Robbie were charged with calling the race start to finish. And I should point out, not just in Australia, but basically right around the English-speaking world. Now, you're replacing Phil when in reality, and I think you might have said this yourself, he simply couldn't be replaced. Hugely exciting for you, but also difficult given the act to follow, I'd imagine. Yeah, absolutely. And it wasn't SBS that made that decision. No. It was actually ASO, right. the organisers yep. of the Tour de France. So it wasn't an SBS decision. It was 
for all the various broadcasters because of the commitments that Phil and Paul had with NBC and it conflicting with being able to do the generic broadcast for what was the world feed. And for you know, Phil and Paul started commentating on the tour together in 1986 and it was on SBS for the first time in 1991. And they were my soundtrack to cycling. In the same way, growing up, listening to Richie Benno and Bill Laurie was the soundtrack to my summer. So I didn't want to anybody to think that I was trying to replace them. And I actually knocked back the opportunity to do that the year prior. And I was making the case with ASO that we do it as a more of a transition in the same way that cricket does it. And you have a bit more of a change up within the commentators per stage, but they wanted to do that swap. And I made it clear that as soon as you make that decision and you tell them, let me know straight away because I want to ring them. So I rang them both straight away and they were really supportive and really encouraging. Paul was super encouraging of me on that first day and he let me know that you're going to get your critics because it's a change in voice. It took us 40 odd years to get into this position to have have that love. Just back yourself and do your own thing. So I took the strategy of turning off all notifications on social media mm. because there are going to be people who like you and people who don't like. And I didn't want my mood influenced by either the positive or the negative. And I just wanted to do the best job I possibly could and always try and improve. And knowing that the benchmark is is Phil, it's pretty high benchmark. It's the one of the highest benchmarks of all time in broadcasting across any sport to try and leap across. So to be in the conversation to have to be compared to him is a privilege in itself. And for me to be able to call him a friend and a mentor is enormous. He's the guy that helped me fall in love with the sport as he did with so many other people. So it was a huge honor and also huge responsibility to get that microphone and be the first the first guy to have that responsibility after Paul, uh, Phil and Paul as the lead commentator for the World Feed on the Tour de France in English. It was enormous. It was absolutely enormous. And that was that was the moment though where you know 2007 we spoke about that where I went to the Tour de France for the first time. When I got to commentate stage finish at the Tour de France for the first time, that's when that goal had been accomplished. It took 10 years to get to from my first Tour de France to commentate on a finish. So it was a 10-year apprenticeship. That's when that goal was accomplished. So I'm not sure when you turn your notifications back on, but obviously a job like yours necessitates a thick skin. I mean, you're being judged all the time. And in today's day and age with social media and the like, people are only too happy to provide some feedback. So have you (laughs) developed developed that over time? And you're aware, obviously, that, look, even the perfect uh, commentator, there's no such thing. Everyone makes mistakes from time to time. How do you reason with that and process all that? Um, There was a really good quote from Morgan Freeman. He said, don't take criticism from anybody you wouldn't take advice from. So I thought that was pretty good. Mm. Uh, But I've got thick skin through growing up in a family of seven. And there was, I used to produce this. I found all the sponsors did the production and did the hosting for a show, The Bike Lane, that was on SBS that I did with Robbie McEwen. And I thought it was pretty good. And dad didn't watch the first show. And I said, oh, dad, just watch it this Sunday. Let me know what you think. So dad watched the second episode. He came to my place on the Monday, popped in for a coffee. He's sitting at my kitchen, having the coffee that I made for him. He says, watched a show yesterday. Touch dull, pal. Touch dull. <laughs> so if your dad's giving you that feedback, you're going to have thick skin to deal with some social media. I love it. So COVID has meant you've obviously stayed close to home in the last year or two. Casting forward, are you back on the road next year, do we think? I think we'll be back on the road, but less. I'll be back on the road for the tour, the men's and the women's race, and I can't wait to call yeah. the women's race. But we, I won't be on the road for the Vuelta de España, the Giro d'Italia, etc. So I 
I will go from around about six months of the year in a hotel bed to about three months of the year in a hotel bed. So that's been a big win for me out of COVID because as you know, Sam, with a couple of young kids, I've got a nine-year-old and 11-year-old. That time flies on by. So I want to spend as much of it as possible with Maddie, thanks so much for donating your time today. Your dedication to your craft is so admirable. And yours is a journey that started, well, with big dreams on the bike, but you're now living your dream off it. And it's thanks to the hard work and a passion that really does come through on the small screen. In fact, you make 2am on the couch in the middle of winter an enjoyable experience. And that is a special skill. Well done on all you've achieved thus far. Best of luck for the future. And thanks for joining us. Thanks, Sam. And thank you for joining us also. You've been listening to This Is Your Journey for Tobin Brothers Funerals Celebrating Lives. Jump online to find them at tobinbrothers.com.au and we'll catch you the next time we celebrate another great sporting journey. Want to witness the world's biggest football game? Head to iCanWin.com.au, predict Australia's score with a crystal ball, and it could be you and a friend at the FIFA World Cup Qatar 2022 semifinals, all thanks to McDonald's. Maccas, together and loving it. TNCs apply.